0: Section 8 of Figures of Several Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Melvin Lee. Figures of Several Centuries by Arthur Simmons. Section 8, John Donne, number 1. Biography as a fine art can go no further than Walton's life and death of Dr. Dunn. From the good and virtuous parents of the first line, to the small quantity of Christian dust of the last, every word is the touch of a cunning brush painting a picture. The picture lives, and with so vivid and gracious a life, that it imposes itself upon us as the portrait of a real man. Faithfully copied from the man as he lived, but that is precisely the art of the painter. Walton's picture is so beautiful because everything in it is sacrificed to beauty, because it is a convention, a picture in which life is treated almost as theme for music. And so there remains an opportunity, even after this masterpiece, for a life of done which shall make no pretense to harmonize a sometimes discordant existence, or indeed to produce, properly speaking, a piece of art at all, but which shall be faithful to the document, a piece of history. Such a book has now been written by Mr. Gause in his Life and Letters of John Donne, Dean of St. Paul's. It is perhaps the most solid and serious contribution which Mr. Gosse has made to English literature, and we may well believe that it will remain the final authority on so interesting and so difficult a subject. For the first time in the light of this clear analysis, and of these carefully arranged letters, we are able, if not indeed to see, done as he really was at all events, to form our own opinion about every action of his life. This is one of the merits of Mr. Gauze's book. He has collected his documents, and he has given them to us as they are, guiding us adroitly along the course of the life which they illustrate, but not allowing himself to dogmatize on what must still remain conjectural. And he has given us a series of reproductions of portraits, of the highest importance in the study of one who is not merely a difficult poet, but a very ambiguous human being. They begin with the eager, attractive, somewhat homely youth of eighteen, grasping the hilt of his sword so tightly that his knuckles start out from the thin covering of flesh, passing into the mature dun as we know him, the lean, humorous, large-browed, courtly thinker, with his large intent eyes, a cloak folded elegantly about his uncovered throat, or the rough tightening about his carefully trimmed beard, and ending with the ghastly emblem set as a frontispiece to death's duel, the dying man wrapped already in his shroud, which gathers into folds above his head as if tied together like the mouth of a sack, while the sunken cheeks and hollow closed eyelids are mocked by the shapely moustache brushed upwards from the lips. In the beautiful and fanciful monument to St. Paul's, done after the drawing from which this frontispiece was engraved, there is less ghastliness and more humorous beauty in the brave attitude of a man who dresses for death as he would dress for court wearing the last livery with an almost foppish sense of propriety. Between them these portraits tell much of Mr. Gauze in his narrative, tells us everything else that there is to tell, much of it for the first time, and the distinguished and saintly person of Walton's narrative, so simple, so easily explicable, becomes more complex at every moment as fresh light makes the darkness more and more visible. At the end we seem to have become singularly intimate with a fascinating and puzzling creature, whom each of us may try to understand after his fashion, as we try to understand the real secrets of the character of our friends. Dunn's mind, then, if I may make my own attempt to understand him, was the mind of the dialectician, of the intellectual adventurer. He is a poet almost by accident, or at least by reasons, with which art in the abstract has but little to do. He writes first, first of all, because he has observed keenly, and because it pleases the pride of his intellect to satirize the passions of humanity. THEN IT IS THE FLESH WHICH SPEAKS IN HIS VERSE, THE CURIOSITY OF WOMEN, WHICH HE HAS EXPLORED IN THE SAME SPIRIT OF ADVENTURE, THEN PASSION, MAKING A SLAVE OF HIM FOR LOVE'S SAKE, AND TURNING AT LAST TO THE SLAVE'S HATRED, FINALLY RELIGION, TAKEN UP WITH THE SAME INTELLECTUAL INTEREST, THE SAME SUBTLE INDIFFERENCE, AND IN ITS TURN, passing also into passionate reality. A few poems are inspired in him by what he has seen in remote countries. Some are marriage songs and funeral elegies, written for friendships or for money. But he writes nothing out of his own head, as we say. Nothing lightly, or it would seem easily, nothing for the song's sake. He speaks in a letter, of descending to print anything in verse, and it is certain that he has never completely absorbed by his own poetry, or at all careful to measure his achievements against those of others. He took his own poems very seriously. He worked upon them with the whole force of his intellect. But to himself, even before he became a divine, he was something more than a poet. Poetry was but one means of expressing the many-sided activity of his mind and temperament. Prose was another, preaching another, travel and contact with great events and persons scarcely less important to him in the building up of himself. And he was interested in everything. At one moment he is setting himself to study Oriental languages a singularly difficult task in those days. Both in poetry and in divinity, he was more Spanish than English books in his library. Scientific and technical terms are constantly found in his verse, where we should least expect them, where indeed they are least welcome. In Ignatius, his conclave, he speaks with learned enthusiasm of Copernicus, and Brahe and of his own immediate contemporaries. Then, but just become famous, Galileo, who of late hath summoned the other worlds, the stars to come nearer to him, and to give an account of themselves, and Kepler, who hath received it into his care, that no new thing should be done in heaven without his knowledge. He rebukes himself for his abandonment to the worst voluptuousness, which is an hydroptic, immoderate desire of human learning and languages. At 23, he was a soldier against Spain under Raleigh, and when on the islands of Voyage, later on at different periods, he traveled over many parts of the continent with rich patrons or on diplomatic offices. Born a Catholic, he became a Protestant, deliberately enough, wrote books on controversial subjects against his own party before he had taken orders in the Church of England. Besides a strange, morbid speculation on the innocence of suicide, he used his lawyer's training for dubious enough purposes, advising the Earl of Somerset in the dark business of his divorce and remarriage. And, in a mournful pause in the midst of many harrowing concerns, he writes to a friend, When I must shipwreck, I would fain do it in a sea where mine own impotency might have some excuse, not in a sullen, weedy lake, where I could not have so much as exercise for my swimming. Therefore I would fain do something, but that I cannot tell what is, no wonder, though I be in such a planetary and erratic fortune that I can do nothing constantly. He confesses later in the same letter. No doubt some of this feverish activity, this uncertainty of aim, was a matter of actual physical health. It is uncertain at what time the wasting disease of which he died first settled upon him but he seems to have been always somewhat sickly of body, and with just that at times depressing, at times exciting, a malady which tells most upon the whole organization, that preoccupation with death, which in early life led him to write his biothenatosis, with its elaborate apology for suicide, and at the end of his life to prepare so spectacularly for the act of dying, was but one symptom of a morbid state of body and brain and nerves, to which so many of his poems and so many of his letters bear witness. Sometimes, he writes in characteristic letter, when I find myself transported with jollity and love of company, I hang lead to my heels, and reduce to my thoughts my fortunes, my years, the duties of a man, of a friend, of a husband, of a father, and all the incumbencies of a family. When sadness dejects me, either I countermine it with another sadness, or I kindle squibs about me again, and fly into sportfulness and company. At the age of thirty-five he writes from his bed, describing every detail of what he frantically calls a sickness which I cannot name or describe, and ends his letter, I profess to you truly that my loathness to give over now seems to myself an ill sign that I shall write no more. It was at this time that he wrote the Biathanasis, which, its explicit declaration in the preface, Whensoever any affliction assails me, methinks I have the keys of my prison in mine own hand, and no remedy presents itself so soon to my heart as mine own sword. Fifteen years later, when one of his most serious illnesses was upon him, AND HIS LIFE IN REAL DANGER, HE NOTES DOWN ALL HIS SYMPTOMS AS HE LIES AWAKE NIGHT AFTER NIGHT WITH AN EXTRAORDINARY AND IN ITSELF MORBID ACUTENESS. I OBSERVE THE PHYSICIAN WITH THE SAME DILIGENCE AS HE THE DISEASE. I SEE HE FEARS, AND I FEAR WITH HIM. I OVERTAKE HIM, I OVERRUN HIM IN HIS FEARS, BECAUSE HE MAKES HIS PACE SLOW. I fear the more because he disguises his fear and I see it with the more sharpness because he would not have me see it. As he lies in bed he realizes I am mine own ghost and rather affright my bedholders than instruct them. They conceive the worst of me now and yet fear the worst and give me for dead now. And yet wonder how I do when they wake at midnight and ask, How I do tomorrow? Miserable and inhuman posture, where I must practice my lying in the grave by lying still. This preying upon itself of the brain is but one significant indication of a temperament, neurotic enough indeed, but in which the neurosis is still that of the curious observer the intellectual causists rather than of the artist a wonderful piece of self-analysis worthy of st augustine which occurs in one of his funeral sermons gives poignant expression to what must doubtless have been a common condition of so sensitive a brain i throw myself down in my chamber and i call in and invite god and his angels together and when they are there, I neglect God and his angels for the noise of a fly, for the rattling of a couch, for the whining of a door. I talk on in the same posture of prayer, eyes lifted up, knees bowed down, as though I prayed to God, and if God should ask me when I last thought of God in that prayer, I cannot tell. Sometimes I find that I forget what I was about, but when I begin to forget it, I cannot tell. A memory of yesterday's pleasures, a fear of tomorrow's dangers, a straw under my knee, a noise in my ear, a chimera in my brain, troubles me in my prayer. It is this brain, turned inward upon itself, and darting out on every side in purely random excursions, that was responsible, I cannot doubt, for all the contradictions of a career in which the inner logic is not at first apparent. Dunn's career divides itself sharply into three parts. His youth, when we see him a soldier, a traveler, a lover, a poet, unrestrained in all the passionate adventures of youth. And then a middle period, in which he is a lawyer and a theologian, seeking knowledge and worldly advancement, without any too restraining scruple as to the means which come to his hand, and then a last stage of saintly living and dying. What, then, is the link between these successive periods, the principle of development, the real done, in short? He was none of these, or all of these, or more, says Mr. Gause but surely he was indeed all of these, and his individuality precisely the growth from one stage to another, the subtle intelligence being always there, working vividly, but in each period working in a different direction. I would fain do something, but that I cannot tell what is no wonder. Everything in done seems to me to explain itself in that fundamental uncertainty of aim and his uncertainty of aim partly by a morbid physical condition. He searches nothing satisfies him, tries everything in vain, finding satisfaction at last in the church as in a haven of rest. Always it is curious, insatiable brain-searching, and he is always wretchedly aware that he can do nothing constantly. His three periods, then, are three stages in the search after a way to walk in. Something worthy of himself to do. Thus, of his one printed collection of verse, he writes, Of my anniversaries, the fault which I acknowledge in myself is to have descended to print anything in verse which though it have excuse even in our times by example of men which one would think should as little have done it as i yet i confess i wonder how i decline to it and do not pardon myself of his legal studies he writes in the same letter for my purpose of proceeding in the profession of the law so far as to a title you may be pleased to correct that imagine where you find it i ever thought the study of it my best entertainment and pastime but i have no ambition nor design upon the style until he accepts religion with all its limitations and encouragements he has not even sure landmarks on his way so speculative a brain able to prove and proving for its own uneasy satisfaction that even suicide is not so naturally sin that it may never be otherwise, could allow it safe to be guided by no fixed rules, and to a brain so abstract, conduct must always have seemed of less importance than it does to most other people, and especially conduct, which is argument, like the demonstrations on behalf of what seems, on the face of it, a somewhat iniquitous divorce and remarriage, or like those unmeasured eulogies, both of this blessed pair of swans and of the dead child of a rich father. He admits in one of his letters that in his elegies, I did best when I had least truth for my subjects, and on the anniversaries in honor of little mistress Drury, but for the other part of the imputation of having said so much, my defense is that my purpose was to say as well as I could, for since I never saw the gentlewoman, I cannot be understood to have bound myself to have spoken the just truth. He is always the casuist, always mentally impartial, in the face of a moral problem, reserving judgment on matters which, after all, seem to him remote from an unimpassioned contemplation of things, until that moment of crisis comes, long after he has become a clergyman, when the death of his wife changed the world for him, and he became, in the words of Walton, crucified to the world, and all those vanities those imaginary pleasures that are daily acted on that restless stage, and they were as perfectly crucified to him from that time to the end of his life, he had found what he had all the while been seeking, rest for the restlessness of his mind. In a meditation upon the divine nature, occupation in being ambassador of God through the pulpit, himself as it seemed to him at his fullest and noblest it was himself really that he had been seeking all the time conscious at least of that in all the deviations of the way he himself the ultimate of his curiosities end of section 8